feel like it's Lady Mary and Quinn that we have to watch out for. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> it's oh no, true. no, 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 no. Like, <laughs> but Quinn would be best friends with Anna though, I think. Okay, but we should Don't fuck yeah. can, can we fight about Like in an upstairs downstairs kind of way, but like, you know. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay, you know. dear listeners, no. <laughs> The episode is not about Downton Abbey. This time. Um, this time. Maybe we should do like a first season. The sequel episode. comes out in March. Um, the movie. The movie's getting a sequel. I need to watch more than like an episode. Like I like. I've never I saw, seen it in my entire life, so I can't tell you anything. Okay, I thought it was gonna be like some real uptight, like prestige drama kind of thing, and literally in what is it, episode one, like the murder snatch happens. Okay, that's episode like two. Netflix episode something? two. <laughs> it's on Netflix. Fantastic. It might be episode three. Yeah. It's season one, and well, there's only six Lady Mary has sex with a man, which kills him. This is in season one. So, that sounds like AHS Coven yep. vibes there's, going on There's literally, there. like, I've seen this show so many times, I've memorized it, literally. There's no reason. No reason that that man had to die. <laughs> was was he an the old blood. man? No, oh, he was like twenty-five. He was young. He was sexy. He was active. The only reason he died is because he was foreign. That yeah, you're not wrong. Literally, you know, springboard. <laughs> let's just launch right in. Let's let's distract you from <laughs> what are we reading, playing, watching, or not doing? Um. Well, Aaron. I restarted Skyrim the other day. Right. Again, because, you know, they have that whole entire 10th anniversary thing going on in a couple months. Oh, and I figured God. maybe I should re-familiarize myself with the fact that they're adding, like, a fishing CC mod in there. I'm angry with that entire studio. Don't but, give me a 10th anniversary edition. I'm also <laughs> replaying all of Saints Row because the new Saints Row got announced. Like, oh. last week. Oh. They're rebooting the whole entire series. It's completely new characters, completely new everything. Don't read the YouTube comments. I, I did. I read the Reddit comments instead, which is significantly worse. Really? A lot of people are really mad about it coming out and not having all the old characters in it, which you guys, I can understand. But You guys read the comments on stuff? <laughs> yeah, because I'm dangerous. part of the fandom. You we hate ourselves. You didn't learn? <laughs> I actually just like to read the comments because I like to see how mad people get, and mm. then I laugh at them, so... Fair. I do that for reviews of YA books that I want to read. <laughs> just because I like to see people say stupid things like, I just didn't understand this book. And I'm like, you read a whole 384-page book that you didn't understand? Girl, bye. I have better things to do so with So what are life. you reading, Anthony? What am I reading right now? Yeah. I Okay, so I recently started The Left Hand of Darkness. By okay. Ursula K. Le Guin. Fascinating. Queen. However, I can't stop thinking about how much more interesting it would have been had it been written now as opposed to in the 1960s. Because it definitely made a big wave in the, in the 1960s for all the right reasons. But I, I'm reading this from the 2021 perspective going... This would be so much more interesting if the narrator was just gay. <laughs> like, you know, here's this straight man looking at a different society going, oh my god, they do things differently here. And it's like, well, yeah, <laughs> it's called another planet. But that was revolutionary in the 60s in science fiction. So, hey, you know, That's it's not right. bad. It's wonderfully written. It's Ursula Le Guin, you know. She does her job well. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, I am, and I had to 
Google, I remember the title of the book I'm reading, which is Ace of Spades. I pulled it because trying to pronounce the author's name is going to be a problem for me personally. It's very difficult. Don't even worry about it. It's a YA novel written by a... A black British woman named Farida Abike-Iyimide? That's not bad. Question mark? That might have been close to correct. Pronunciation? Yeah. I tried. It's called Ace of Spades. Yeah. It is... I am... 200 some pages in and it's two and a half stars at best so <coughs> but and all of the professional reviews completely this thing got her, like and I two don't professional understand. stars and I want to know who is reading this book yeah I, even the so non-professional so you saying it's like not it's as a, good as the hype yeah like it was it? very hyped on, and I am so far incredibly underwhelmed on Goodreads it's like a 4.45 and all of the things that people are saying literally are the exact opposite of everything you've told me about this book. Yeah, Even I have... pull quotes that you've given me, I'm like, how do people actually think <laughs> that this has anything, like, is it's doing the... what they think it's doing? What is the name of it again? Ace, Ace of, of Spades. Spades. I, again... The cover looks cool. The cover looks cool. Like, it's got should... so much hype. It's being billed as Gossip Girl meets Get Out. Except, like, it's not done in any particularly well-crafted way, in my opinion. This is just me. Maybe I forgot how to read. Um, Maybe everyone on Goodreads forgot how to read. Oh, I'm looking at That's more believable. Oh, that's one. Okay, there we are. 4.3. Yeah. I need to read that next. Yeah. Again, I'll finish it up as soon as I can. My MLA committee is going to hear from me about this. No, I think Sorry, guys. Not that you listen to this podcast. I, Maybe you should share it with them. <laughs> Send it on the list, sir, Vandy. Right. <laughs> this will just be me saying this as the black person on the podcast because I feel like saying it. I'm so tired of black authors getting hyped for crap books. I'm sick of it. I. It's fine. White authors get props for crap books all the time. So I guess, you know. The quality. Last, <laughs> the last five years has been great, but, like, I'm tired as a black author who wants quality. As a black reader who wants quality. Stop it. All right, carry on. <laughs> I am reading, and which was fascinating because I, I finished it last night at okay. around 10, 30, 11. Okay. Um, the Firekeeper's Daughter yeah. by Angelina Boulay. Yeah. Angelina yeah. Boulay. It is Boulay, yeah. Boulay, Boulay. Um, I thought I heard it said else a different way this morning at one point. I'm like, huh. Me. Okay. Um, but anyways, I was reading this entire book thinking, this is good. This is too good. <laughs> I'm waiting for something to make me not like it anymore. And there was always that little eye-narrowing point. I'm like, oh, God, oh, God, they're going. No, they didn't go there. Never mind. They, they, <laughs> they, there were little things that like they were starting to lean into as a uh, YA. Even like, I'll use the one angle of a very romancy kind of uh, subplot within it. It's more of a, you know, a little bit more than just a subplot, but whatever. Um, Every now and then it would start to go to this degree of like, no, don't go there. And then it would backpedal. It would just like, nope, nope, we're not going there. And I'm like, thank you, thank you. It was a wonderful little, I mean, relative, you know, anyone raised in Michigan who knew Sue St. Marie at all, it's kind of fun to hear like so much little stuff like, you know, throughout the discourse mm-hmm. about that area, especially if you recognize some of the little towns that they drive through, like, oh, I've been to Paradise, Michigan, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Like, man, I want to go get whitefish now. <laughs> But no, that was 
that's I finished that last night, and I feel like it warranted mentioning. Like, but again, I knew it was making some waves, but I didn't realize until halfway through the book. I'm like, this is oh, this is really making some waves. This book is like really well loved. Oh yeah, um, I love that book. I'm. I think it lived up to the hype. Yay! I, for me, um, and like it was just really well put together. Like nothing really bothered me. Um, and even the ending, I was kind of mad. It's one of those endings where you're like, no, but then you realize the way it ended was better than what it would have been if you, if it ended the way I wanted yeah. it to. It's been a minute since I've read it, like six months, so I don't remember all of the details. But I do feel like it probably ended the way it needed to end. Like, just to wrap it up the way things needed to be wrapped up. It made her character a much stronger character Mm -hmm. for it. Um, I'm also reading right now, I started it this morning, was the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. That's on my list! By Grady Hendrix, which, go fig, I did not know that it was narrated by Mrs. Gold Standard herself, Bonnie Turpin. I didn't either. So that the minute her voice, I'm like, my girl, Bonnie! I got worked up. Like I had to pause and like collect myself for a minute, but I'm only an hour into it, and it's it's cute so far. Um, okay. I'm not far enough into it to like say like it's going to be amazing That's or it's it. going to be. I feel like I've heard good things, but maybe not great things. But like you know, reasonably well liked by the people I know who have read it. I know Aaron read um, Grady Hendrix's uh, My Best Friend's Exorcism, mm-hmm. which she liked it, but she's like overhyped. Okay. So I'm, I don't know. If I like it, I like it. If I don't, I don't. Whatever. I'm still kind of in that little wake of a firekeeper's daughter. That's probably going to be up there with the Invisible Life of Addie LaRue is one of the top three yeah, books honestly, of the year. Yeah, honestly, it's already one of my top yeah. like, of the year reads. Woof. Oh, wow. What is Graham wow. reading? Senior-ish. What am I reading? Yeah, what are you reading? I'm, uh, I'm reading, I'm almost done with Path of the Hero by Dave Overton. Um, it's the sequel to Serpent Catch, which I read earlier. Um, first of all, it's a bad title. It's a cheesy title. Very good book. Um, <laughs> cheesy happens. title, good book. Wait, no. how old is this book? Though? How old is this book? Yeah. Uh, like 89 or 90, I'd say. Yeah. That's, yeah. Wait, what's it called again? It's Path of the Hero. Path of the mm, Hero. It, it's about cavemen fighting. Mean, it's a whole thing. But, okay. Um, <laughs> and the funny thing is, while I was reading it, um, I was like, there's like, there's a concept within the book called The Path of the Crushed Heart. And I was like, that makes such a better title. That does. And then... Oh, God, that's lamentable. And then I looked into it and... Wolverton? Yep, Wolverton. He's since reissued it as four separate books, which, why? Because the books aren't intensely long or anything. I was going to say, how long is the original? They're not that long. 1993, guys. 1993. 1993. A banner here. And he did name the fourth and final part of this new reissued series, Path of the Crushed Heart. So that kind of remedies that a little bit. Okay. Okay, but, sure. but what, He yeah, got there. Um, but the book is... It's the good. book cover is I, so 90s. Yes, it is. I, <laughs> I love it, though. Um, I, I could definitely see it as like a hyper-violent animated show or something, which would be really... Okay. Cool. Berserk. All berserk. Yes. Which, I, which I'm going to start reading soon. Yes! Um... It is a book of ideas, though. So it's it's it stimulates the mind and the. You do I don't tend know. to read those, you know. I don't, that is okay. I, as someone who's reading the Left Hand of Darkness, I cannot criticize. No. <laughs> oh, that's what yeah. I'm reading. Yeah, Aaron, right. we got what you were playing. Are you reading anything? Anna and the French Kiss. Yeah. <laughs> oh, is it about 
French kissing? In part. No. Well, there's some French. Yeah, well, sure. They're in France and they some kiss. They count. Yeah, France, they count. Yes. <laughs> it's cute. Oh, I like that it takes so me much. back a week. What a time. Anyway. Oh, a week. Well, not quite a week, almost a week, anyway. I did also mean to say before we launch, uh, the author of Ace of Spades gave a review to oh. her own book. Well, yes, as biased good, review. Um, good reads. People yeah. do. Oh well, yeah, they do that all the yeah. time. Biased review, but I can 100% confirm that the author worked really hard on this. I mean, yes. Well, I sure. I have no doubt in my mind cuz like I mean, that's this is plotted than most author like reviews I've seen. There's enough plot happening that clearly some effort was put into yeah. this. It's just not hitting with me. I can't criticize yet. So we'll just leave that. You haven't read the book? Yeah. Now, do you think it could end up a classic? Because oh it's it's, which okay, really quick. I almost want to throw up. <laughs> okay, we'll probably get a chance to throw up really quick. We'll talk about the next couple throw books. Hands. We'll at least talk about one of them. <laughs> throw hands. Break yes. out the popcorn. No, no, it's fine. Clash of the Classics, 2021. What? Great Gatsby in one corner. Their eyes were watching God in the other. Ding ding. Fight. <laughs> Janie enters. I know. I have to Janie Gatsby. enters. Ready. <laughs> I can't prepare. <laughs> I really should have like introduced us in the Dick Vitale. It, it's go, baby. I mean, play. literally. Jane, okay, Jane, Jane, Jane the character who enters. literally looked at her dying husband of twenty years and it was like, you know, all this stuff that I've never said to you. No, you don't, because <laughs> that's how bad of a husband you've been. But let me tell you why you're dying. How bad of a husband <laughs> you've been. Take that, Nick. Like, come I was on. Just saying, Janie <laughs> enters. Chaos Gatsby in one punch and leaves. <laughs> Podcast over. Let's just hootie hoo. Let's see ourselves out. Um, the next like half hour is just all hootie hoos. <laughs> slowly getting our voices start to crack. Hootie Like the emphysema hootie. Um, so, really quick, round table. Um, Jen, favorite book, can I safely assume, is Eyes Watching God? Yes. I don't, granted, if you had like, to choose between the two. Yes, if I had to choose between <laughs> the two. And granted, neither of them is necessarily like a five star from me, but their eyes were watching got significantly oh. better than The Great Guys. Yeah. You know, I would have to say I agree with that. I still have 150 pages left to go before I finish their eyes were watching God. However, it is not a book that is in any way going to shock me in the next 150 pages, which is fine. Every book doesn't have to. However, I would give it a four star. Yeah. That's what I did. Yeah. Because yeah. I think that it is stellar for its time. It is the first book in American literature, <coughs> fiction, that actually took seriously the dialect of Southern black people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Unflinchingly, without reserve. It had never been done before, which meant that the author had never read it before. So she invented it whole cloth from hearing it. So a little plug for the audiobook. If you have a Hoopla account, dear listeners, oh, that's the one that I listen there to. are both the audiobook for Gretz, or the Gatsby and um, Their Eyes Were Watching books. God were on there. But I want to steer you to the Ruby D narration of I Their Eyes Were Watching narration. God. She killed it like it was so good like like if i could give the odd uh, the, the performance five star the book itself four yeah but agreed she was one of the first uh accents that made me question wait 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 is bonnie turpin the the successor to the the original grandmaster like this woman did a killer dialect she's well, like 
So I listened to her version, like, I'm, like, sitting there for, like, the good, like, five minutes on the way over to Hudson, because there's, like, a big dead zone, so I, like, downloaded it to listen to on the way. Nice. And she does, like, a fantastic, like, soothing, like, voice to go with it. But, like, I was hooked, like, the whole time trying to, like, listen and actually understand her, and a lot a lot of times it's hard for me to, like, get into audiobooks because I get so bored sometimes. Mm-hmm. But, like, her, like, narration actually made me, like, sit there and go, oh, what is she actually saying for once? Because I really liked it. Yeah, I feel like The Rise of Watching God in particular is one where, like, hearing it and maybe even having the text in front of you, like, having both the physical and the audio yeah. would probably be the best way to just intake it if you're not familiar with, like, black Southern dialect. Yeah, I have the advantage on everybody in the room because... As a black southerner raised by black southerners, as soon as I read one piece of dialogue, I was like, oh, oh girl, <laughs> she got it. I mean, nailed it. Even, I mean, she even wrote out, now there's a, par- a, a paragraph above this where it's written out in narrative South Carolina, but literally when a piece of dialogue happens half a page down, that person says, and it's written out, South Carolina. <laughs> and I was like, yep, yep. Absolutely. If I'd never gone to school, that's exactly how I would spell it because that's how it sounds. We don't say South Carolina to each other. I mean, I might say it to you, but you know, well, extenuating circumstances. Sorry, but to my we're people, Yankee friends. it's fine. You know, it makes me wonder a little yeah. bit because I picked up the the more dialect kind of approach to it. I was in North for what three three years, three years. Right, you were in North, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. But you know who I haven't heard. From yet? <laughs> Lord is. Oh, <laughs> did you? Did you? I know you finished Gatsby. Yes. But because we talked about. I it did a not bit. finish. Their eyes are watching that. So I feel like I can't give like a full, <laughs> you know, thought on it. Um, how far did you get? How far did I get? Like a quarter. Oh. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm like. You made a start. Yes. Yes. Um, What's the last thing you remember? <sighs> Introductions. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but I, 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 I was kind of listening to both in the background, to be honest. Um, I guess if I had to say I preferred one over the other, it's kind of bi- I'm kind of biased because I read <laughs> the one. one. You read? It, yeah, it, that's it's valid. Like me, but that's sure. valid. Um, I mean, there's a part of me that like makes fun of that kind of I don't know flowery aristocraticy <laughs> language, but also secretly likes. So I think that's you know, kind of predisposition to like that and. I just think it paints a good. I'm 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 sure it's like the the basic thing that everybody says. It paints a vivid picture of the jazz age. No, and Fitzgerald does write a very one, good sentence. We can give I him wonder. that. One kind of like I mean, view into the jazz age. Like it seems it's very. <laughs> no, yeah, It's very classist. Very, very. Well, not I mean, that's literally just Gatsby. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. and and to a to his credit, it is kind of a. If you look at it from a certain point of view, it is kind of a takedown of that whole lifestyle, to to a point. Do you know when he said certain point of view, my mind went to Obi Wan Kenobi. Yeah. It always does, right? <laughs> um, I wonder. You know, can anyone explain this to me? Because I've still yet to hear a cogent argument in its favor. What is the big deal with that book? There like, is what it. is it? Genuinely, I like again. It's well written. Yeah. I can get through it. But I don't know why it is something that, like, now that the copyright has expired, that everyone and their brother is writing, like, their reimagining or their sequel or their prequel or whatever to it. Like, literally, that book, Nick, came out 
five days into the new year. The copyright expired January 1st, 2021. This is ridiculous. They were yeah. waiting. That, that person been literally waiting. had That person was ready. From my brief scouring of the Wikipedia article, I guess it was at some point it was like handed out for free to, was it soldiers? Yes, soldiers in World, in World, War, World War II, II I believe. Sure. And like <laughs> they brought it home and then like it kind of spread by. Yes, because like I think it was that, like a tree grows in Brooklyn, I think was one of them. Yeah, that was there were supposed to be a couple of things that they made like super like that. cheap, like mass production paperbacks. Mm. Uh, things that I think had kind of fallen out of favor in America, but then all the soldiers bring their tattered paperbacks home, like, this is the only thing that kept me alive in the trenches. Which is, yeah, you know what? And that's a. Uh, I, I. It's one of those things that happens in literary conversations that it, that's just how people read books. It's a paraliterary thing. For sure, you, for you sure. Know? And it's like, that's great. I love it. Um, but in terms of quality of, in terms of why we teach it in schools, in terms of why it's it keeps me. happening, in terms of why it keeps being adapted by, you know, filmmakers. Like, I'm like, I don't get this. Like, am I missing something? What is it saying about anything? I mean, whatever, <laughs> whatever you're missing, I'm missing. I do find it interesting how, and this is just for my brief research into both books, that they mm -hmm. both weren't super well received when they came out, and then over time, they, their standing greatly increased. Do we have any opinions on why? You know, it's. I found that too. Buried by one Richard Wright. Well, well let's that. give Alice Walker her props for kind of bringing it Unburying up. Unburying it, yes. Um, thank you, Alice. But it's, <laughs> it's actually kind of because I pick up on that too, <laughs> um, that they, neither was well received. Which <laughs> actually, Gatsby was very. Like we were talking about this a little bit. Kind of doing a little digging into like F. Scott Fitzgerald because I I really don't know that much. That was like a biography of his life almost. I mean, very um, inspired by his own life because like it, Fitzgerald's wife wouldn't marry him until he was famous, and or he published his first book. He published his first book. They got married. Now there's a parallel to the Gatsby character who, you know, he found this amazing young woman and Daisy and. Would have nothing to do with him, really, because he weren't. He, he wasn't. You weren't. He wasn't um, elite. He wasn't well off or well to do. So he. Um, it, it was. I found myself and not hating it as much as I remember. Like I've read it a few times here and there, and I. I think maybe I'll read it in another year or two, and I'm like, oh, God, this is gutter trash. Get rid of it. But I, I found myself, I gave it three stars. I think I gave it three and a half or four. Um, like, it was, but then again, my three is some, for some people, three is scathing. For me, three is, like, that's middle of the road. I neither hated it nor absolutely loved it. It was just it. very neutral. Yeah, yeah, it is. A, that's what, yeah, it's a very, very tepid book. And yet, it keeps cropping up, and people praise that book to the rafters, and I'm like, y'all, it ain't that good. Like, it's not the worst thing I've ever read by no stretch of the imagination, but it's never going to approach good. Taking it back to your point of, like, why do we teach it, I do think if you're depending on what, like, just general high school English. I have no idea why that's general high school English, besides, as we had kind of privately discussed before, mm -hmm. it's short, and mm -hmm. there are 
reams of pages of scholarship on this thing where if Absolutely. you're doing a book report, yeah. you can find material to use. Absolutely. I could say if you were teaching on like a constructing a sentence level, Fitzgerald writes a good sentence. If you're doing some <laughs> when kind, he wants to. When he wants to. <laughs> if you're doing some kind of deep dive into that, I can see this, you know, doing even just set, like portions of it, not necessarily assigning the whole text, but doing like a deep dig study into that. I can also see it as like a character study type thing. Like again, if you're going to deep dive into Jay Gatsby or into Daisy or into Tom Buchanan, if you're going mm -hmm. to deep dive into something, sure. Mm -hmm. But like, you can't teach it for a plot standpoint because the plot doesn't kick in until chapter six. It's a nine chapter book. You know, I also, oh, go ahead. Oh, I, I, was, I was just gonna say, I did, yeah, like, like, like you said, halfway through the plot kicks in. I actually preferred the first half where you're kind of just um, absorbing this decadent world that he brings you into. No, and that's fair. Once the plot kicks in, I'm like, I don't care who likes who. I don't, you know. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's, yeah. You like the world building like as the opposed to the actual then, plot of this book. The, yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe if he wasn't constrained by the need to have a plot, I don't know. No, I agree with you. Or like, yeah. let's watch these terrible people murder somebody and get away with it. Like. Mm -hmm. Right. I was going to plug uh, Sean Astin's narration of it, if I haven't already in this podcast, um, available on Hoopla. And <laughs> Take a drink every time we say that. <laughs> right. I, I thought when he, like, Sean Astin's narration was good, wasn't stellar, nothing I'm going to write home about. However, when he did the Tom Buchanan voice, <laughs> I wanted to punch Tom Buchanan so hard. Like, I always want to. Like, I mean, I, I just read always want to myself, anyway, but, like, the minute Sean Astin started delivering Tom Buchanan, I'm like, it's even worse now. <laughs> <laughs> like, way to go, Sean. You made me hate the guy even more. I think the thing that I feel very strongly about Fitzgerald at least in the Gats in Gatsby. In his other work, I don't know. But in Gatsby, I feel that herein we have a, pr a problem that has plagued the American Ac um, Academy of Letters for way too long. If the man had just stopped being a snob for five seconds, he'd have realized that it would have been much better if he had thrown in a detective and made it a murder mystery. Period would have been much more interesting. You would have had an excuse for plot because you literally have to have a structure if you're going to tell a murder mystery. It would have been much more interesting. Okay, Nick, the character who is this possibly unreliable narrator who, you know, whatever, do you trust him, do you not? That's so less interesting after the plot kicks in. So I, mean, I, I want to know, and I, okay, you know, <laughs> why did he choose the specific style that he cho chose? Because in terms of his contemporaries, he is far less talented. Every single one of them bests him on every single level of writing a novel. Why in the world did he not just go, make it a murder mystery? <laughs> maybe, maybe you specifically uh, could clear something up. Like, sure. was, because he, or anybody really, because I'm, I'm really not up to date on the context Mm -hmm. of the time, mm -hmm. like literature-wise, was was Gatsby or was was Gatsby or his writing in general considered like experimental for the time? Like, was it off the beaten path or? Like, I don't. I feel like the very little I know, I don't know about experimental. I feel like I saw some like Lit Hub article where it collected contemporary reviews of Gatsby, like from Fitzgerald's oh. peers, and I feel like it was one of those things where they're all like, "This is crap." So, well, that's, that but again, will. because but, his contemporaries were Faulkner 
and Hemingway. Like, yeah, Hemingway doesn't do plot because Hemingway shouldn't do plot. It's bad enough that you have to plot around with these people who come back from war who don't do anything but plot around town and drink beer. Like, fine, but at least he made it pretty. Like, you know, he experimented with some things, sometimes to his detriment, but he did it. Um, so if you're competing with Hemingway and Faulkner... Yeah, and you suddenly decide you get, halfway into your book, like, <laughs> oh, I want something to happen in this now. Right, like, you gotta come with more than just pretty sentences, man, because, like, are you doing Faulkner sentences? And also you have to remember, Henry James had just, you know passed at, you know, recently, or maybe he hadn't passed quite yet. And Henry James had just, you know, done his thing. You've got uh, across the other side of the Atlantic, you've got Virginia Woolf and James Joyce beasting it out with each other. Like, these, this is a tough time for writers to make their stamp um, on, on fiction, particularly American fiction. Twain has, you know, died. I mean, there's a, there's a big, for lack of a better word, power vacuum in the literary landscape here that a whole bunch of writers were trying to fill and you know to me it seems as though Fitzgerald didn't really have much to offer he just needed to marry a wife can I <laughs> which okay fine he won his prize he can also I... died at age 44 of a heart attack yes I know <laughs> he... whoops yeah anyways can I circle back to a point you raised like four points ago? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> Where did the thing with like Nick being an unreliable narrator come from? Because I feel like that's like a very I didn't get that. current it's a weird I, of scholarship, but I don't get it. You're right. Yeah. I don't know how far back the scholarship goes. It may have cropped up in the '70s when uh, posts because um, like Nick modernism admits and, he's know, like, hey, I'm kind of sick. Like you know. I like Gatsby kind of unreservedly for a while. And then, like, a lot of this stuff happened that I will go on to explain to you where I kind of liked him less for a while. But I've ultimately decided, like, no, I'm going to choose to like him. Mm -hmm. I feel like he needs somebody, like, you know, he kind of needed somebody to just like him as a friend. And so I'm going to be that guy for him. Like Nick's saying, he's a little bit biased towards Gatsby. Like, maybe not just full rose-colored glasses, like... Right unreservedly, but he says it in the text. There's a whole school of thought that believes he's unreliable narrator because they think he's gay. There's mm. so many, there are so many um, pieces sorry, of scholarship. I'm sorry, I just went to a boredom coma hearing that take. Well, no, sir, but there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of scholarship around the idea that um, he never would have said it, but he must have been because why else would anyone put up with Jay Gatsby? Therefore, <laughs> You know, unreliable narrator because you hmm. know. I mean, I don't buy it. I don't. That's uh, interesting. Uh, but Gatsby's not that terrible either. Yeah, you'd have to be secretly gay to hang out with Tom Buchanan. But like Gatsby, <laughs> Gatsby's just kind of a waste of space with a lot of money. Like he's a tryhard. Is like the thing is he's trying so desperately hard because he wants Daisy to come back to him. He's your friend who's doing the most because the girl next door won't give him the time of day. Yeah, we call that, um, well, it's a word involving male genitalia. <laughs> so, according <laughs> but, to know. Sparks notes, he's a unreliable narrator because, like, there's moments where it's between the three. It's Nick, Gatsby, and Daisy, like, in the room at the time. Mm -hmm. And he will leave the room okay. and they'll have something going on. And then... Gatsby comes back and he tells Nick, and then in the book, you only really see 
Gatsby's point of view because that's how Nick's portraying it. And so that's well, one of the reasons he's considered the great Daisy now, is it? No. <laughs> which is understandable, but like the reason they're saying that is because like he'll turn around and he's like giving this whole entire like narration from his own point of view, but then Gatsby comes in and tells him his point of view. And he just kind of, like, takes it at face value, and that's the only point of view that we actually get. We don't get, like, Nick actually coming and viewing the situation, or Daisy telling him the situation. But, like... You mean, like, how stories work? The main character, so I don't understand why he's an unreliable narrator at that point. You know, I find it very interesting, speaking of narration, that Their Eyes Were Watching God assumes that the author is the narrator. Okay. She doesn't... She makes no bones about that. There's no trick. There's no, you know, twist, whatever. Obviously, Zora Neale Hurston is the narrator. She's the one taking charge and saying, all right, I'm going to tell you the story about this woman named Janie. And uh, you're off to the races. Mm-hmm. Easy yeah. going. But I find that to be such an interesting, like, little argument with... And I only say that because... Dating back to the, oh, right after emancipation, um, an argument began in the black community between folklorists, actually, of whom Zora Neale Hurston was one, so she would have been aware of this, um, about how do we as black people write black stories? Okay. And there was one side, we'll call them the Richard Wrights of the world, even though he was sort of a lame example of it, but anyway, who believed we should write the struggle, the real way that we feel about life, the real confrontation that we have to deal with all the time, which is, you know, basically white people, um, and how that feels and what that's like. And we need, and, and if you can, if the white man's paying attention, if you get some white readers, educate them a little bit. They need to know how this feels. They need to know what their problems, you know, how they cause problems on us, blah, blah, blah. And you can see that thread all the way through African-American literature. And then you have the other side, which, as you probably all know, is my preferred side. Uh, <laughs> what? Which is the Zora Neale Hurston side, which is like, I ain't writing for nobody but us, period. I'm going to make my characters sound like us. I'm going to make my characters move like us and move with us. And, you know, so in Their Eyes Were Watching God, white people are mentioned as, like, somewhere out there in the universe. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, the white man, when he does things, and it's yeah. like, so what? Or Janie lived with one for, like, you know, 10 minutes as a kid. <laughs> Literally, yeah. Well, exactly. You never meet them. You don't know what their names are. You just know that her grandmother was a slave. How do you know? Because, hey, Janie was born there, and she knew some white people. That's about it. Like, it's not... And, and of course, it had some kind of impact, obviously, on her grandmother choosing Jamie's husband for her. She's like, yeah. all right, you got sex organs. You're marrying the 60-year-old. Bye. And, and then that's it, right? Um, but other than that, it's, it's... There's a little bit more. I don't... You might not have gotten to this part yet because you said you didn't yeah. quite finish. There's a bit more when Janie and Tea Cake move to oh, the Everglades. Couldn't remember yeah. the name of the place for a minute. <laughs> oh, God, those two with alligators. Yeah. Ah, carry on. But there is a restaurant owner in, like, the camp area that they move to where they're basically just, like, seasonal, uh, like, croppers. They go in, mm. they pick all the string beans or whatever is the sure. there. Yeah. And, you know, they go eat at the town restaurant. They work at the town store and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the owner of the restaurant, the wife, she is obsessed with Jamie because Jamie's light skin. Oh, yeah, sure. 
And she thinks, like, she thinks it's a crime. Not that Janie's so much older than Tea Cake, but because Tea Cake's darker than Janie. Mm. She has a problem with that. She's like, why are you spending time with this man? I have a brother who's light-skinned like you. You guys should get together. So she's be- colorist. Yeah, she's colorist against. Right. And, like, she's apparently not, like, she's light-ish, but Janie's even lighter than her. And she thinks, like, the two of them should totally, like, become best friends and separate themselves from the rest of, of these tragic yeah. dark-skinned people here on the right. camp with them. Right, yeah, but even that... And eventually know, like, keep marrying so light that they, you know, that their children's children can pass for white or whatever. Right, and that's the thing, you know, in, in, in this book is couched this incredible, down to the sentence, linguistic argument, because you have the narrator who's, who never writes in dialect. Not mm-hmm. once. Doesn't slip. And then you have the dialogue, which is pure dialect. I mean, not a piece of it isn't, you know? Um, which is, you know, a, a, a very, very black argument. And then you have this other scene that you're describing, which, again, is a black argument. It was something that when, uh, that black people in the 20s and 30s talked about all the time. Mm-hmm. And because it was a big deal, it was like... If I don't have to suffer, I'm not going to. And the rest of y'all who do should have been born lighter. Peace out. Like, yeah, I mean, well, that's kind of why Janie's grandma marries her off to the first husband, too. Yeah. Not so much for the skin argument, but, like, the you will be set for life if you marry this rich man. I don't care that he's three times your age. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Janie. Except yeah. for not... I mean, I think that's the other thing. The thing that I love the most about this book is that it's hysterical. Nobody ever, no person who's ever talked to me about this book has said, you will pee yourself laughing. You will cackle. No one. And I'm like, did everybody miss the part where this was supposed to be a farce? Like, it's so funny. It's just... Some of the preaching was... Yeah, I mean, they hold a funeral for a mule. (laughs) That is good. Like, that's hysterical. Like... Yeah. I mean, you know, name 20 classics that do something that funny. I, you know, it's just one of the, it's one of those those books that I feel it could be so easy just to sort of underrate just because it's one giant yarn and there's not necessarily a lesson couched in it. And if you wanted to find a lesson, the lesson would be, "Hey, I'm a woman and I got thoughts." <laughs> Wow! Like, yeah. you know, but it's never told in a revolutionary way. It's just kind of like, and Janie had to grow up to learn that not only did she have thoughts, but her thoughts mattered. <laughs> Do you think it would be interesting, because at one point we're having a conversation, like, should we find a focus within this podcast of, okay, which is better? Is one better than the other, or should one be taught over the other kind mm-hmm. of argument? Do you think it would be a, kind of a smart pairing to teach them to together, like together one, and then immediately follow up with the other. And the reason I started doing some digging off like the past like two weeks after I finished one, then looking at the other, mm-hmm. there's a lot of scholarship using the two in an essay talking about. Well, that's interesting. Like, I mean, even at one point they were talking about like Janie and Daisy are compared. Well, through a feminist whoa. lens, I need to actually go back well, and get that new, and read that. That's a new take. Um, but. I could see the merit of teaching more so now that we've had this little brief discussion mm-hmm. about reading one, teaching, reading the other, teaching, then bringing it all together. Mm-hmm. 
and looking for where maybe one succeeds where the other doesn't, where one fails. Mm -hmm. um, I could see it, I guess I just don't see what, like, you know, because sometimes when you kind of parallel teach titles, there's some kind of, like, very direct, like, thematic link, yeah. or, like, you know, this is a clear derivative of this and here's why. Like, I get outside of being relatively the same time period, I guess I don't necessarily see what the link between Gatsby and the rest of Watching God would be to, like, truly delve into in, like, an academic way. Like, could you make one? Probably. I'm sure yeah. Anthony's thinking of one right now to prove me well, wrong. Well, I mean, but no, not necessarily to prove you wrong, but I think, I mean, one could... One could <laughs> That's great. Chosen. <laughs> one could say that, you know, both books are about a singular character okay. moving through uh, a life change, multiple life changes, um, surrounded by a group of eccentrics. <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay. Um, and, and, and you could examine that just for plot device alone, just be like, okay, how did one handle that plot idea, those plot threads as opposed to another? What would have driven uh, Fitzgerald to write the story the way that he did, setting it in a city, as opposed to setting it in, you know, a, a country town. Oh, and I feel like the aspects know. of, like, class and race would also be, obviously, yeah. here's how some of these stories differ. Fitzgeralds are rich white people, and Hurston's are poor black people, but... But the dignity, that's the one thing that both authors did extraordinarily well, is that they dignified both classes. You know, Hurston's poor black people discuss being poor black people. There are whole reams of arguments between them about, well, you know, some of us could do, could afford to do better by each other. I'm you kind know, of waiting to hear the dignification in Gatsby. Well, they're, I mean, they're wealthy white people, and they act like it, they, and they don't feel bad about it. Like, and I know that sounds funny, but like, it's something that in 2021 we tend to forget. There's no. a lot of flogging oneself for the privileges that you have, and it's like, that's not recognizing yeah. privilege. Or when we it's write about, just, you know. Like, the ultra-rich today, it is from a perspective of like, well, here's why they're actually weird, or here's why they're actually terrible. Yeah, yeah, these or, are wealthy white people who know that they're wealthy white people, they understand how class works, and they just don't have to care about anybody else, so they don't. But that exact same dignity is taken from an opposite lens, and neither one, I think, is more dignified than the other. One can make an argument for it, I suppose, but it's interesting that they both assumed that level of dignity despite the, dif the disparity of class, you know. Um, no, I did. Yeah. I just don't have any word to take it. You've wrapped that up very well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, they would be, I think they would be interesting. Uh, to be taught together, I think they. I, I mean, to your to your question, like, what would be the, like the warrant? Why, why would you want to teach those two together? I don't know. Just by virtue of this, us having this discussion, we chose about it. Like, okay, we chose these because they were short. Let's be fully honest. We, we knew that all of us were gonna pick, try to speed I, I guess read these in like ten do. days. I chose to pair and them together when we did our choosing between three days. I, I didn't know that we chose them because they were short. I put the two together partly because they were short, but also because they were they were contemporary. I mean, they're about a decade apart, but they were... But more contemporary than some. Yeah, they were contemporary with, with each other. I just figured like we picked them because there was a body of knowledge behind both. We picked these because well. they were I short. Also, yeah. um, I also thought <laughs> of them, too. Especially because um, we were picking this like 
three weeks ago. Because that's what a classic is, you know. I mean, when people talk about classics, I have to allow me to get on my soapbox just for you wait, wait. You haven't been on it this whole episode? No, this is the real soapbox, okay? He takes one foot off and he climbs back. <laughs> when we talk about classics, the nauseation that I get because people think that just because the book is old, it's a classic. That is not how classics work. In order for it to be a classic, it has to have a body of scholarship, period. That's okay. how classics work. You don't have a classic without a body of scholarship. Therefore, when someone like Alice Walker finds their eyes are watching God in the 70s and says, the color purple does not exist without this book, suddenly, after the color purple wins Some the Pulitzer, everyone goes, what is this? Who's this? What, what, who? And every black woman scholar in the world uh, like emerges mm -hmm. on this book. And then it becomes a classic because 200 black women in, in three or four years wrote about the quality or not quality, whatever, yeah. of the book. It doesn't mean that all the scholars praise it. It just means that they talked about it. And scholars don't talk about books the way we do. We talk about books. We, I almost said a bad word. We <laughs> trash talk books. We go, why would they do that? We question it. Scholars dig deeper because that's the job. And if 200 right. scholars within a year can read the same book and find 200 varying perspectives on that one text, that's okay, a but classic. Sometimes scholarship is trash-talking somebody who wrote a different yeah. paper. Absolutely! That I would call bad scholarship. Um, having read enough of them. Because <laughs> I don't want to hear your bad take on somebody else's bad take. Who cares? Like, get, you know, <laughs> Give me a good take it. on the right, thing like, that they're your, reading like, about yeah, what's a bad take on. Don't tell me that Tolkien was racist. I know that. Mm. Tell me something else. Like, you know. <laughs> anyway, that, that there, rant over. I, it's, <laughs> I'm done. And just circling it. So Andy fully <laughs> opened this earlier with a question that I feel like you stole from our Facebook book club that we are all in, unless you haven't been looking at Which it. Which one? Jean literally posted like 10 minutes before we started recording this. Oh, wait, what was the question? A meme in the book club. Yes, book oh, no. Saying, what, you know, do you ever finish a book and go, this is going to become a classic, and like, do we have any guesses on what books of our generation I did see that. Jean for putting that meme in there. Yeah. <laughs> I did comment on that too, I just threw out Hunger Games. Yeah, but what do we, because you opened this podcast with, when we finished doing what are we reading, right. what do we think will become classics, and I mean, like, just what? I mean, The Hunger Games already is, Harry Potter already is, yep. again, because it's the body of scholarship is there. Yes, but those are only 10 to 20 years old, quote unquote, only. Sure. We're talking but again, age. Gatsby and their eyes were watching God at 90 to 100. What do we think is going, what do we think will have the continual body of work? But that's my point, is that the age of the thing is not the reason that something like Harry Potter and the Hunger Games can become what they call instant classics, right? Is one because they were read by everybody. I mean, the world over. So immediately scholars are gonna look at something like that and go, what in the world? And have something to say about it. But more than that, there are more scholars than there were when these This is true. Other books came out. When Little Women came out who cared? But then a few, uh, then a few, you know, scholars got a hold of it, or 
they read it as kids, grew up, became scholars, and said, I wonder if that book has any merit now that I know something Okay, I kind of want to attack the, the, the Harry Potter world for a minute. Um, okay. <laughs> you mean the books? <laughs> the author? The, you do no, this, the world. You do this on September the, the 1st. The, the fans? <laughs> we got to get Get on the train, Harry. Get on the train. Are you Turn around. Harry? Like, what? where are we okay, going with this? Okay, let's let Amy speak his question. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> kind of playing this, this side of it. Yes, there's a lot written about it, but Perez Hilton and other many other moron with a, a, a platform can talk or create a body of literature. Okay, but that's not an academic paper. They're not scholars. We don't know about Perez Hilton. But there are scholars writing about it, but it's also the flavor of the week. I mean, for the past 20 years. But will it still be written about in 50 years? But again, that... Will it be offered the, the same level of... That's the premise of my point. Age is not what classics are. Period. That is not how they are. But defined. I feel like there's a certain factor that into it. Like no, that's just people not knowing what classics Ursula are. If Ursula K. Le Guin was written about for ten years and then forgotten, never touched again, she's still a classic. Why? Because she held up to ten years of scholarship, not ten years of reviews, not ten years of being a bestseller or not. Not to, it has nothing to do with it. It has everything to do with the fact that scholars took the time, effort. Yeah. And you know whatever to write about her, and not just two, three, four, five scholars, ten, twenty, forty, fifty, eighty plus. Are people still writing long? about her though? Absolutely. Yes. yes. If in but right, that's I know. just because she died like a couple of years ago. Whether or not people are still writing about them doesn't make them any more or less classic. They're classic because scholars. Wrote okay, about but them. if if the shelf life of for twenty years, I feel like in twenty years. There hasn't been any modern scholarship about, say, the Sorcerer's Stone or any of the Harry Potter the series as a whole. Still a classic. I would disagree. If it falls out of favor, and if, <laughs> if in 50 like years, 60 years, it has only had like 20 years of I being feel the like flavor. You're both, I feel like you're coming. Work. I feel like you're coming at this from different quarters. Like yeah. you, I'm literally coming at from that's. How, but you're coming at no. You're coming at it from a very academic. Question of you are using because <laughs> academics defined classics. <laughs> classics did not exist no. before academics were like, this is what it is. That period. People right. have yes. always read but books. In the popular parlance yeah. where all of the rest of us are arguing from. I today. hear you, I hear you, but but the popular parlance of classics is not classics. It's I liked the book, or the book has been around right. for a long time, or people are still talking about this book. That is not a classic. Period. Yeah, like I think the horses come out of the barn on this one, unfortunately. But if the scholarly, if the scholarly attention seizes at it, like at a fixed. Because I feel like this is how we reach some of those, like, oh, it's a rediscovered classic. It happens thing. all the time. Yeah. Literally, their eyes were watching. God did not have scholarship. Okay. Period. Or enough scholarship. Because you know how difficult it is to bury a book. Richard Wright did everything in the world to to bury that book. Had scholars not written about it, had Alice Walker been the only person to be like, this is great, why does no one talk about this? Well then, thank you, Alice. Let's move on. Like, that happens to books all the time that are, that maybe shaped the genre, that maybe had a tradition. Who cares? This happened with Virginia Woolf for a long time. She had a lot of success in her day. Success that's not scholarship, but just success, like people read her work. Mrs. Dalloway was a bestseller, all of this stuff had nothing to do with the quality of the work. It had nothing to do with the scholarship behind right. the work, because there wasn't any. 
Henry James was literally bankrupt except for Edith Wharton. So he had no success, but he's been a part of the Academy for a hundred years because scholars took the work seriously and deemed him an author of classics. I'm just hypothetically suggesting that something can lose its classic status. If to the it, public. Like, it, but it, it, even like, academically, if, uh, if in a hundred years nothing new has come out, like, say, like, 2021 right now, if in 20, like, Jesus, what's the next century? <laughs> 21, you know. The problem is that the academic world just doesn't work that way. You know, I was going to say, has anyone really written that's, like a, I did say like hypothetically a, for a reason, but I feel like no, I'm no, not I know. What I mean, has anyone days. really written like a hot take on Pride and Prejudice in the last hundred years? Oh, like, sure. yes, it gets yeah. discussed, but like there's not new conversation about it happening. But Pride and Prejudice is still a classic. This is, this is fair. I but. mean, you, you, it would be hard-pressed for any scholar... If you were if you were a scholar and you went to your doctoral, I don't know how this stuff works, yeah. but you're whoever, and you were like, I'm going to write my doctoral thesis on Shakespeare, they would look at you real funny like, all right, go ahead, pitch me your idea, because how are you going to pitch them something new and fresh on Shakespeare? Like, I mean, people do like, do it. I feel like there are people who get doctoral things on Shakespeare, but they got to have a like, focus. Like, come at, you know what I mean? Like, right. be real with it. Like, I mean, really give me something. You're probably not going to. But that doesn't mean that Shakespeare is never again going to be considered a classic just because for a hundred years people can't find something, a new angle. Because acad- that's just how academia works. Someone will find some new angle in the next 10 years on Harry Potter that no one was thinking about. No one's going to read it except other scholars because people don't I, read I think we're also forgetting, too, in the, the minds of a scholar, too, like the lens might change. Maybe for a few decades or a hundred years, yeah. no one does find anything yeah. new to say. Right. But then like cultural, you know, the, mm-hmm. everything has changed and mm-hmm. now they start viewing it through a different lens. Yeah, but I mean, that's just, that's how classics are. I'm just curious, like, can things fall out of favor as being a classic or, and, and it's not something you can actually definitively say yes or no to. Um, you have your beliefs on it. Fall out of favor is a strange, like yeah, like though. I mean, what are you like? Are you saying we stop teaching it? Are you saying it just stops being it's, like something that, I carry I in a library? No, <laughs> like, that, that's my point. Because fall but, like, out of, what does fall out yeah, of favor? Fall out of favor is again, it's one of those like yeah. with popular reads. That's how we talk about books. Yeah, a book just isn't popular anymore, or it just isn't best selling anymore, or it isn't interesting anymore. Yeah. I mean, think like about I just when, weeded. Sorry, everyone who's going to hate me for saying this on a recording. Do it, girl. <laughs> I weeded all of our Asimov collection. I am going to repurchase a better looking copy of Foundation mm-hmm. because it's a classic. Make, but I'm not buying the whole trilogy. I'm not rebuying the spinoffs. Right. Does that make it less of a classic? And even, you know, TV I'm shows... I'm not asserting anything. I'm asking. Right. TV shows have... Back up your questions. <laughs> I <laughs> don't do that game where you just throw a question out there and you don't have anything for yourself to say unless it's a genuine, like, learning question. If you're just poking the bear, I want you to have an opinion behind it. I think it's cheap and lazy otherwise. It, maybe it is cheap and lazy, but it's still... I mean, it's I still a thought like, process. I, uh, okay. Because what is... It, Again, if something goes in 50, 60 years, what is the relevance behind it? But that depends on the, like, for example, Foundation is a great example of this, right? So Foundation, when it, I mean, obviously it it won awards, it was a big deal, Asimov was a big name for a long time. Mm -hmm. You know, several waves of science fiction happened, and nobody was reading Asimov anymore. 
because he didn't have anything interesting to say to modern audiences. And because of a television show adaptation, suddenly people are reading Foundation again. 1984, people read it in school, maybe it was assigned, but it wasn't really in the last couple of decades. It's not something that people were drawn to. COVID happened. The government went belly up. 1984 happened, and people wanted to read it again. It became a bestseller again. So did The Handmaid's Tale in um, Parable of the Sower. But right. like, everyone's in a really weird place. Right? Yeah, right. But that's one of those things that like sometimes just cultural things happen that make something relevant on a cultural level. Mm-hmm. That in the academy, they've been studying it the whole time. They've been looking at Octavia Butler for decades when nobody else was paying any attention to her. She's a veritable classic of science fiction that nobody has read because that's usually how classics are anyway. Yes. But it's a fascinating mindset. Like we talk about classics at some point, like a classic gets stamped a classic and then it gets shelved. Because I'm sure that there are probably countless classics yeah. out there. But isn't that the joke? Classics are books nobody... But, but, Classics are books nobody has this read. Is, yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Look, because it because it is an academic exercise. It's a scholarship. It's it's not anything more than that. We place such a cultural relevance on classics because we read them in schools, which is why I think it's a, a huge mistake. I get it. It makes the job easier. Try harder. Children should not be reading classics just because they're classic. Children should be reading books that they can read, that they love to read, and that makes them better readers, which means readers who keep reading. Not readers who can read a 15-word sentence and comprehend, oh, come on with all that crap. Send them to college. They'll do but fine. But like, even in that vein of discussion right there, like you're saying kids, like what age of kids? All of them. All the way up. If they want to take it more seriously, then become English majors then you'll take it seriously. You'll learn historical context. You'll learn, you'll be an English lit major. Right. That makes much more sense. Whereas, you know, we do that with every other discipline in education, you know. I shouldn't have to be a historian when I graduate from high school. There's some things I should know, like, hey, slavery happened in the United (laughs) States. Hey, you know, Jim Crow happened. Hey, the Holocaust was real. That's fine. I should not be the kind of person who can give you dates and names and figures and facts and did you know this with a high school diploma, please. I have right. more important things to worry about, like paying the bills and feeding my children and making love. Like, I mean, you know, all the important things that human beings do. They have nothing to do with an education. If you want a more serious education, well then go to college, because hey, guess what? That's what they invented it for. Become an educator. I don't want to do that. That's what everybody else is for who's educating. They're great. I love well, then go them. teach the educators. I don't want to go teach those people. They, they're fine. So you have <laughs> a dog in this them. fight. I, ju- I have a dog in this fight as a member of the society who has, you know, who's very smart. <laughs> also, are we not tangential educators as librarians, or have we given up on that concept? So I don't know. I don't know about it. We are Another, massively wait, over wait, time, wait. guys. Yeah, we're... We- <laughs> I, I believe Aaron did have a suggested smack. Oh, do you? Yay! Uh, so you can switch out two of the last two people for the third person, because I can't really decide. Uh, Daisy. Oh, God. <laughs> Janie. And you can uh, either pick between Nick or Gatsby. Go. Why can't we have Jordan? I mean... You can have Jordan if you want. I want TK. Dang. You what? can also <laughs> pick between TK. Wait, wait. Okay, no, I'm sorry. Mm. Give us the original one so that we're not, like... 
literally, it was Nick and Gatsby as the last two. You could just switch between which one you wanted to kill or not. But J- Daisy and Janie. Gatsby's more interesting. Nick doesn't have much of a personality. <laughs> Even though he's the one narrating the book. <laughs> <laughs> Daisy, Janie, and Gatsby. Yeah. I literally made this up on the spot because I forgot to go get one upstairs. Okay, well, first of all, you marry Janie. That's fair. We love a complicated That's- woman. But also, um, I think she's the only person you could actually spend a life with, like, reasonably. Uh, I don't know. Child, she went through two husbands. Um, real quick. No, not quick, but you know what I mean. So, okay. I would marry Janie. I would make out with Gatsby. You know, I think it was Daisy. Daisy.